Welcome to Asking Hard Questions, a podcast for arts educators where we explore issues of cultural representation and appropriation. I'm Rachel Jacobs and I'm coming to you from Gadigal land and I work on Darug and Darul lands. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging and we acknowledge that cultural learning was one of the oldest ways of passing knowledge on country and has taken place on this land for thousands of years. We acknowledge any First Nations listeners with us here today. And I'm Rachel Dwyer and today I'm coming to you from Gubby Gubby Country up on the Sunshine Coast. So this is our final episode for season one of Asking Hard Questions. And our goal for this episode was to coincide with Harmony Day, which has actually just been and gone. Um, and we got a little bit behind or um, had a few too many things going on. Harmony Day is typically a day where schools engage in cultural activities and celebrations. And Rachel, I know it's a day where you're often asked to perform all over the place. So can you start by telling us a little bit about what you got up to on Harmony Day this year? I am asked to perform all over the place. So from one of our previous podcast episodes, some listeners will know that I am a Bollywood dancer and I run a Bollywood dance school, which is exceptionally wonderful. And so I get booked a lot on Harmony Day to do cultural performances. And so what I usually do is go to a workplace or a school and we do a performance and everyone claps and takes photos with us and it's really uh, fun. And I've noticed that afterwards there's usually a food stall with food from other cultures. For me, this is a bit problematic. Uh, engaging in dance is always a wonderful thing. Engaging in different foods and cultures is always fantastic. But I've always thought that Harmony Day is a bit shallow when all we're doing is engaging in dressing in cultural clothing. We're sampling each other's food. We are sampling other cultures through dance and music and art. And I also noticed that when I was dancing, it was people of colour who were doing all the cooking and were doing all the dancing, all the performing. And the white audience was really passive in that conversation. They were, they were very appreciative, very respectful, because that's what the day is all about. But they were definitely passive. So what we'd like to do instead is go deeper. So, Rachel, if it's okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a brief history about what we call Harmony Day. Please do. So overseas, they don't have Harmony Day. It is the International Day to End Racial Discrimination, or sorry, for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, and that is a UN-sanctioned day. And it was UN-sanctioned after an incident in the 1960s in apartheid South Africa in a place called Sharpsville. And a group of police opened fire on a group of uh, peaceful anti-apartheid protesters and a number of people were killed. I believe it was up in the 70s um, people were killed. As an acknowledgement that, uh, that racial discrimination has disastrous results and that racial discrimination should be stamped out everywhere, the UN set aside this day as a day of commemoration and a day of reflection. Now, in the 90s here in Australia, John Howard decided that this was Harmony Day because we don't say ugly words like racism and it implies that we've reached, reached a post-race utopia. 
So we instead have children dressing in orange. It's also beyond me that we have a day that um, we're supposed to be celebrating cultural diversity and all the colours and races of the world. And there seems to be this default amongst organisations that you wear cultural dress or if you don't have anything to wear, you just wear orange. And so it's like orange wash is orange wash a thing. (laughs) (laughs) And so what we have is... A beautiful, fun day, but it doesn't go very deep to examine the causes of racism and we don't go very deep to make commitments to what we can do better to stamp out racism. So instead, what I did today is I worked on a project that I have at the moment. It's called Deep Harmony and Deep Harmony was funded by the Australia Council for the Arts and I work with schools and I work with community organisations and on Harmony Day this year, I didn't take any dance bookings. Uh, I went and did um, Deep Harmony instead. And I worked with some community organisations and I engaged them in some deep learning about racism and some of the history of racism in Australia and overseas. We engaged in the background to the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And we talked about why racism occurs, where it occurs, what it looks like, and most importantly, what we can do. The conversations were deep. There was laughter and there was also tears. And we finished with some beautiful Bollywood dancing. I invited people into my culture. I told them why we do some of the things that we do, such as that we have a beginning ritual called the Namaskar. I taught them a little bit about some boundaries, about how uh, it's okay to wear a sari if it's culturally appropriate and you've been invited into my culture. So this is why you are able to culturally respectfully engage in my art form. But I also reminded everyone that we don't really wear bindis or turbans or other religious artifacts on our body if we're not from that religion. And Bollywood dancing or my art form became a portal through which people walk through towards greater understanding. It's a method of transformation rather than me standing there and being clapped for being different. It was a way of inviting people into a deeper conversation. And as you know, Rachel, Bollywood dancing is also so joyful. Conversations about race are hard. It's why our podcast is called Asking Hard Questions. But I think the arts can also act as a panacea to for us to walk through that portal in a really productive way. Not a method of distraction. We don't want distraction from hard issues. But I think that the arts can be a beautiful way for us to engage deeply and appropriately, but also joyfully so that we can emerge with better understanding together. Thank you so much for that conversation. There's so many things that I want to follow up on. And I think that that the the comment about being clapped for being different is <laughs> we've seen that so or that that kind of idea so much in attempts to diversify curriculum by plopping different cultural dance or different cultural music or different, um, you know, of films or or theatre works from different backgrounds into a curriculum and calling that job calling the job finished basically um that really tokenistic world tour kind of taster approach um that becomes so problematic and really when i've done a lot of thinking about um music multicultural music education as it used to be called lately and that was really 
the best people could come up with at the time. Yeah. It was, uh, I'm thinking back to sort of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the way that that um, movement began was really an, it was a genuine attempt to diversify the curriculum, to get away from exclusively white and almost exclusively white males who lived hundreds of years ago. Mm. Yes. Um, and so there, it was well-intentioned, but as people moved through that process of bringing those kinds of materials into the curriculum, they realised that there was more to it than that because it becomes decontextualised. It becomes removed from any sense of the importance for the people who are participating in this culture, that cultural materials belong to them and that they have importance and value that is lost when we just pick it up and put it into a school classroom that's that's exactly it you know the picking up and is because I guess you only pick up part of it you don't pick up the whole um it's a bit of a cherry pick and that's where things start to get lost and that's where things start to get ignored and that's where it becomes problematic and I think that that's really important to recognise that there are um, that these are issues that we need to be thinking about all the time if we're going to engage in this in a respectful kind of way in our classrooms. So your Deep Harmony program sounds so interesting, um, and but not every school has access to have visiting artists coming into their school um, all the time to work with students. And we also need to acknowledge that not all visiting artists who are bringing um, their own culture into a school program to share with students are going to necessarily want to engage um, or have the capacity to engage students in those kinds of deep conversations. And so there are things that perhaps teachers could do to support those conversations to happen. Um, but I also think we don't need to rely on visiting artists all the time to come in and do this work. There is space for teachers to do things um, that mean that their curriculum is rich and inclusive and vibrant, um, but also reflective. So I think that one of the important things that teachers need to do is to make sure that they're thinking and reflecting on um, this cultural ideas as part of their everyday practice. So making a commitment to thinking about their curriculum and their pedagogy, asking questions of um, how could I do this better? How could we go deeper? Where is the context? Are the students getting an understanding of the meaning of this, of this cultural practice, of this artistic practice? Do they understand the context that it's from and the importance for the people of that culture? So also engaging students in those conversations about culture is an imperative part of that process and being confident to engage with students in conversations about appropriation and about racism when they arise in the classroom, I think is really important. And Rachel, I'm sure you've seen a few examples yourself about how this has gone in the wrong directions, even with some of the best intentions of curriculum writers and teachers as well. So do you want to tell us maybe if you have got an example to share with us? Look, I have a long list of examples and I have to say there, and unfortunately, there is a long list of examples of um 
particularly com compositions within the classical tradition of and examples of white composers who have borrowed cultural materials without permission. And there is um, a, a, quite a, a significant number of these um, that have come from um, borrowed Australian Indigenous Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, melodies, materials, um, sort of composers who've declared themselves to have been inspired by um, a cultural ceremony and they wrote a piece in response to that, whether they're borrowing the actual musical material or not. And I, there is one example um, that I've seen, I know is still taught in, in um, senior classrooms in Queensland, in senior music, is um, a piece called Corroboree by John Antill. Now, John Antill was a white composer, a white Australian composer. The piece was written in the 1940s and first performed in 1950. And the thing that really strikes me is that this is John Antill's most famous work. It made his career. It's a ballet called Corroboree. Um, inspired by a ceremony that he saw somewhere in the Sydney region. Um, and the things that I guess are the red flags for me is that we're not seeing any recognition of the specific country. We're not seeing any, rec any acknowledgement of the original people who were involved in this ceremony. We're not seeing any sense of permission. And I think we need to be fair and say that maybe in the 1940s and 50s, that just wasn't considered to be something that was necessary and that this could very well be and in our most generous um, treatment of John Antle, he was saw himself as it could have seen himself as elevating Aboriginal culture by putting it on um, on a concert stage. Um, as part of a ballet performance and you know we can put that in its context and say that's not asking permission was not something that was considered necessary at that time we know now that it is necessary um, and that it even um, and it would be perfectly reasonable for that permission to be denied um, to not be granted permission to um, to use materials in that way um, and that we have a respect for self-determination of First Nations people. Um, so we can acknowledge that times were different then. However, if in 2022, if we're going to use this in a classroom, then we can't just focus on that kind of musicological analysis of the piece. How does the music tell the story? Um, which I suspect still happens in some classrooms and um, that there is space for another conversation that really I think has to accompany use of this kind of work around permissions, cultural protocols um, and the fact that when we say that when we hear that this made John Antle's career, this was the piece he is best known for. Think about the impact that that had. This is essentially stolen material that um, was used to leverage 
this person's career. And so we need to have conversations about the fact that this happened and think about the lasting impacts of that, that there is, um, you know, a conversation to be had about reparations. This is one example, but it's not the only one. So if listeners are interested in learning more about this, um, I really recommend Christopher Sainsbury's platform paper, Naraburia, A New Music and the Search for an Australian Sound, which goes through, um, Christopher Sainsbury is an Aboriginal composer, um, and he goes through uh, lots of different um, Australian composers who have interacted with um, Indigenous knowledges, Indigenous composers as part of their um, composition work. So I'd really recommend um, giving that one a read. He goes through uh, quite a few examples of um, appropriate consultation um, and also some where it is quite widely known that the materials um, were cultural melodies or songs that... um, weren't used with permission and um, so I think that there is um, that's a a really fabulous resource for teachers who want to dig a little bit deeper and to bring some of those examples to for discussion with their students. I just want to remind our listeners that some of the conversations around reparations in the arts uh, but also reparations and land back more generally might be uncomfortable or something that people are unfamiliar with and we'll put some links in our resources section that you can have a read of. One of the points uh, that decolonial conversations they are supposed to be challenging. Tuck and Yang mentioned that there is supposed to be a level of discomfort about it so you lean into You lean into that conversation. But, Rachel, for something to finish with us to lean into, we are at the end of our uh, five-series podcast where we've dealt into some really challenging issues. If I can challenge you hugely, if there was one thing that you wanted our teachers and our student teachers to remember on their journey, what would it be? It is really hard to come up with one thing because I have lots of ideas, to be honest. But I think... um, I'm going to speak from my own personal experience and the thing that has made the biggest difference for me, and I know I've mentioned this previously, is actually educating myself and broadening my worldview. Um, Not just thinking about the content that I use in my classes and the content I present for students, but really digging deeper into trying to understand the world from different perspectives. And I do that through engaging with um, literature, with um, cultural products produced by people of colour and in a really wide perspective, um, not just Australians, First Nations, but right across the world, really looking for um, ideas that are challenging and uncomfortable but also that are quite that are enjoyable as well like particularly when it comes to reading novels as well um, it is thinking about a different uh, the world from a different perspective as we work through um, these materials and for me that has made the biggest difference in terms of my confidence to engage in these kinds of conversations and I would say the one other thing that has made the biggest difference is I follow a whole lot of activists and academics on Twitter and what I get from that 
is a real sense of the conversations that are going on. Of course, we know what Twitter's like. There are it's a subsection of the community that is on Twitter, but there are a lot of um, First Nations activists and academics on Twitter. And to get a sense of the conversations that are happening in those spaces without demanding additional labor of people is what I get from Twitter, is that I don't have to constantly um, check in with people and ask people questions directly that then require other people to give me their time to respond um, is that I can get sort of a sense of how um, people are responding to issues in different communities when they come up. An example of this is um, the um, Aboriginal flag, which has had a whole copyright um, uh, issue that has been a, a problem for a really long time and was um, resolved in one way or another earlier this year um, to get a sense of how the mainstream media was presenting that Australian government securing the copyright to the Australian Aboriginal flag but also what Aboriginal people were saying about that um, meant that I could see a really different perspective and see a range of viewpoints on um, how this was playing out without feeling the need to call up an Aboriginal person and ask them to explain it to me and um, say what they think. So to me, that has made a huge difference to get a sense of different perspectives and worldviews. And Rachel, just to talk a little bit about how that's reflected in your day-to-day -day life, for me as a person of colour, I see you doing that work and you don't do it to be visible, but the way it manifests is that when we're doing this work, I don't ever feel like I have to do extra labour. I don't ever feel put upon. I don't ever feel that you're here doing engagements like these for your own personal gain. We all gain something by doing this, but I don't ever feel that I'm being used in that situation. Uh, you always are really respectful of my views and we can now have these really open conversations because I tell you can tell you coming from a perspective of someone who's done the work. So uh, you know that I'm not in the business of applauding white people for doing uh, what I see as the bare minimum, but <laughs> I think that if we can give an example to our listeners of some different ways in which you can progress forward, these are some really useful tips. So I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, if there was one thing you wanted our listeners to take away from this podcast, what would it be? That hard question again, but I guess I just want our listeners to remember that as a teacher, you're in an incredible position of power, but a beautiful position of power as a role model. Your students look at you, even when you think they're not looking, they are watching you and they will replicate everything that you do. Sometimes they'll learn things in spite of what you do as well. So it means that if you show leadership on this, they're going to really take that on. And it means that also if you dress inappropriately in a costume, if you use someone else's dance, if you go and copy a dance from YouTube or whatever, you know, a First Nations dance from YouTube, they're going to think that that's okay and they're going to do that in their personal life as well as their professional life. But at the same time, if you model for them, ongoing work and correct behaviours and adhering to protocols, if you model to them respectful attitudes, they are going to take that on. And this is the incredible position that you're in to do work that is generational changing work. Um, what a tremendous opportunity, what an important role that you have. And 
I just want to make sure that that's a hopeful conversation as well. I think that you all have potential to be really inspiring. The simple fact that you're giving this podcast your, your, the time of your day means that you are interested in doing the work. And I think that you're going to be a tremendous influence on your students if you can put in that work and make sure that you're always mindful that you we can do better and we want to do better so that we will do better. I think that is a great place to leave this episode. We may be back one day in the future um, with a season two. Um, And I think, because I think we've got a lot more conversations to have about this. Um, But if you've got any suggestions for ideas that or topics that you'd like us to talk about, please feel free to send them through to us or get in touch. Thank you for joining us on Asking Hard Questions.